0: Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And in this episode, I'll be completing my short little series on Willa Cather's uh, tiny little novel, O Pioneers. Um, O Pioneers is Willa Cather's second novel, and it was published, um, her third book published, I think, after The Troll Gardens and another book that... I'm not going to be looking at this series. I use the Library of America, so I don't. You know, if it's not included in there, I usually am not going to to look at it in this series. Um, but so, O Pioneers is usually considered to be the first of a informal trilogy called the Great Plains trilogy, which also includes the uh, the novels, The Song of the Lark and and My Antononia, Antonia. So it's a, it's a nice series of novels. Um, I'm actually still working on Song of the Lark, reading it, and I'll start recording my thoughts about that shortly. Um, but I really liked O Pioneers. It's just a nice short tale about a family. About um, It gets right to the point. It, it's got a very clear thematic focus um and it's just got this also got these uh, wonderful sceneries though and the 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 sense you get of being in the nebraska frontier and the challenges they faced and the changes going on in society at the end of the 19th and early 20th century it's all quite alive in this little novel so i think it's worth reading it it doesn't take very long it's you know, with some of these longer works, you've got to kind of make a judgment, whether it's worth investing your time and into it. And, you know, I think had this been like a 500 page novel, I might, I'm not sure I would recommend it as strongly, but it's, it's just, um, it's nice and tight. So I, I, I appreciate that about it. Um, so anyways, I, I've already covered the first over half of the novel in the, in the previous episode, this novel is broken up into five parts. And some of these parts are really not much more than chapters. Um, so the whole novel itself was only about 150 pages. But anyways, um, what happens? Well, so in the first half of this novel, or even more than half, the first two parts, it's called The Wildlands. Part one is called The Wildlands. Part two is called The Neighboring Fields. And this covers actually about 16 years of, of the lives of our characters. So this no- story is, is centered on the, the experiences of the Bergson family. Um, and the patriarch of the Bergson family at the start of the novel is John Bergson. Um, and he's dying. And so all his children are are young. So I think the oldest, Alexandra, is like 16 or something when the novel begins. So they're all young and they're facing this major change in their life. Um, so our main characters are Alexandra, the oldest child, the girl, the one who's most invested in the family farm and its politics and its, um, its economics, I should say. Also maybe politics are there too, but... Um, you know, the way it works. She's the most kind of, she's the manager type. And this is the character that Willa Cather deals with in other stories, actually, where, you know, a woman has to put aside her kind of her feelings, her emotions, her own personal desires, because she's been put in this position of authority in the family. We saw that actually a couple of times in the Troll Gardens. We see it here very strongly with, with Alexandra. So I'm guessing this is going to be a reoccurring theme. In Cather's work so that that's Alexander She's got two brothers Oh she's got three brothers the two older ones are Oscar And Lou and they're much more ma- Kind of conventional characters there's actually not, not that much to say about them they're Patriarchal they don't respect Alexandra They devalue Intellectual work and see Only physical labor is, is valuable Which is why a major crisis in the novel Is their claim to have uh, To the property To their share of of the of the farm when actually it was Alexandra's kind of business savvy that allowed the farm to expand, but they don't value that or like, we work the farm. So they're, they're kind of conventional, they get married and they want their piece of, of land. And that's, that's kind of their story. The much more interesting brother is Emil, the youngest one. And when we meet him, he's just a little kid playing with a cat and actually even then Alexandra bails him out. So one of the first things you see in the novel is Alexandra bailing out or saving Emil, in fact, saving Emil's cat, which is stuck on a pole somewhere. So Emil is much more sentimental, he's much more romantic, and he's much more of a wanderer. He, he spends a lot of the, the, the time of the novel kind of offstage, doing other things. Um, so, but he starts out as a young boy. Um, after the opening scene, they find out, certainly, that their father is going to die. And the father orders the family to listen to Alexandra and to follow her orders. And his major major claim, though, or major demand, is that the family keep the farm together, um, and and to, listen to Alexander. So, we also then meet Ivor, who's kind of a, a, kind of a country mystic, a rural mystic. He's very Swedish. He hasn't learned English. He still reads like the Swedish Bible. He lives in a cave. His homestead's kind of undeveloped. He's kind of a, a frontier crazy guy, um, but Alexander respects him very highly, and is great friends with him. Three years pass and there's hard times in this area of Nebraska called the Divide. A lot of people are just selling their farms and going to the city. The brothers begin to want to do this, um, but Alexander says, no, what we're going to do is we're going to mortgage the farm, buy up as much land as we can. And after these hard times over, we're going to be really rich. Um, And then we jump 13 years after that and we see Alexander was right that the farm is quite prosperous and much bigger. In fact, a lot bigger than just one family can can work. So they have to hire laborers and things. Um, Emil, who went off to school, comes back, has come back and he's working on the farm too. And he, he's reacquainted with his childhood friend, Maria, who's now married and they quickly re-engage their friendship and eventually they, they fall in love. This forces Emil to, after just a very short time, to abandon Nebraska and again travel and he decides to go to Mexico. Around the same time, Carl comes. Carl is a, another kind of childhood neighbor friend of the family. She's kind of she's out he's Alexandra's love interest. And he's actually coming from Chicago, having worked there as an artist, and he's on his way to Alaska. And he he very much didn't like his experience in Chicago. He he felt that it, life like that he was valued more in smaller places which is why he wanted to go back to nebraska and eventually go on to alaska but there's a romance there that's really not possible at this point because carl is moving on to alaska and alexandra has the farm to deal with the major crisis in this um part of the story though is the brothers beginning who have married now the older brothers want kind of an equal share of the farm as it is and Alexandra's willing to give them their share of the original homestead, but not the land she's acquired uh, since then, which she sees as part of the permanent homestead and shouldn't be broken up. So that's the main land conflict. Um, but the other main conflict in the story then is is Alexandra's being forced to deny her own love and then Emile being forced to deny his love for for Marie. And then we see characters male characters flee Nebraska to get away from women that. That they want to have a, a more permanent relationship with, um, so kind of people going, leaving, and coming back is, is a bit of a theme in this novel, and it's actually something that's fairly common in American literature. I've seen it a lot, where especially with like the Harlem Renaissance works, where you have characters always leaving their home, but something tying them back in some way, whether it's race or family or or whatever. Uh, but even with even with the novels I'm passing, we looked at like with the diary autobiography of an ex-colored man. Or plum bun. There's this idea that, like, you can venture out and by passing, you're kind of venturing out, turning your back on your family. But there might be things that pull you back in, and force you to reface your the identity that was given on you by birth. Um, here, this novel, of course, doesn't deal with race at all. It's it's really more about the the heart is what pulls pulls people back to, to Nebraska, or in some cases pulls them away. Uh, you get the sense that Alexandra could be very successful away from Nebraska, but she's committed fully to her father's legacy and her father's farm. Um, and that's kind of where things sit after part two. Part two of the novel is called uh, Neighboring Fields. And we're actually almost done with the novel at this point. There's only about 60 pages left and in the final three parts. And that's what I'm going to uh, go into now. It won't take very long. so This probably won't be a very long episode. Um, But anyways, I'll pick up with part three called Winter Memories. Okay, this is a really short section. In fact, when I said that some of these sections are really not much more than little chapters, this is one part that made me think that it's only about 10 pages. Um, And it's basically about Alexandra now suffering a very, very lonely winter. Her favorite brother, Emile, has gone off and Carl has gone off. And so she's just kind of hanging out. Uh, and it's winter too, right? So there's not really work to do. It's just something you kind of have to endure. Of course, there's some maintenance on the farm or whatever, but it's just, it's just kind of hunkered down for, for the winter. And a couple of things do happen here, though. Like Marie gets these letters from Emil, from... Um, well, she gets them through Alexandra. So Emile sends letters to Alexandra, and then Alexandra passes them on to Marie. So Marie and Alexander talk, and I think this is important because Alexandra realizes this growing love affair between Marie and Emile, and she could have done something about it. And had she been more proactive, she, you know, the tragedy of the novel may not have happened in quite the way it. It unfolded and this I think really contrasts to the go get or take charge attitude of Alexander earlier in the book And I don't know if it's because she convinces herself. She's You know got her own problems or the farms more important She doesn't really take on the consequences of of the love growing between Emil and Marie Um, Alexandra does though realize the dangers of, of this relationship. She's aware of it It's not like she's oblivious to it. She just doesn't really act on it. I guess um she recalls a lot about the good old days while she's uh, this, this particular winter thinking, you know, probably as a lot of us do uh, in wintertime, we think about happier times, especially if it's a lonely winter. So to quote, There were certain days in her life, outwardly uneventful, which Alexander remembered as happy. Days when she was close to the flat, fallow a word about her, and felt, as it were, in her own body and joyous germination in the soil. These were days, too, when she and Emil had spent together, upon which she loved to look back. There had been such a day when they were down by the river on a dry year, looking over the land. They had made an early start one morning and had driven a long way before noon. When Emil saw that he was hungry, said that he was hungry, they drew back from the road, gave Brigham his oats among the bushes, and climbed to the top of the grassy bluff to eat their lunch under the shade of the little elm trees. End quote. You know, these kind of large panoramic scenes, I think, are something Willa Cather does really well. And there's kind of something that's very memorable about this book, even if maybe you're not that interested in the characters or the story. Just the scenery you get, the image we get of Nebraska and the prairie is is really striking. And you get it here. Um, But one thing's important about this thematically is that Alexandra responds to Emile's need. You know, Emile says he's hungry and Alexandra does something about it. And that's kind of the relationship for much of the story until like the very last moment, Alexandra's not there for him. And of course, it's not her obligation to always watch out for Emile, but I think part of her, um, kind of her burden is to, to care for Emil and to set him on the right path, and he didn't, she didn't do it properly, I guess. Is, is perhaps where I don't know. She doesn't really feel guilt at the end of the story either. After Emil dies, we'll get to the death of Emile soon, but it's not a. It, she's her response was kind of weird, but you do get the feeling that like she, she let him down, and that's foreshadowed in the story, right? Especially in this section where she's thinking you know, Emile shouldn't be writing this way to Marie. She's married and this could be trouble. Um, anyways, the other thing that happens in the chapter winter memories or the section winter memories is she dreams of not being in control. She dreams of someone caring for her. So she has, and she has a series of these dreams um, where well, it's actually the end of the chapter. It's just, she went to sleep. She had the old sensation of being lifted and carried by a strong being who took from her all her bodily weariness. So this seems to be her deep desire is just to have someone care for her right something she hasn't had for most of her adult life pretty much all of her adult life since her father died she's been in charge she's had the responsibility for the farm and you know she hasn't had anyone and of course the person who would carry her and lift her would be carl she's she's the only man in, in in her life but um you know it's it's her fate to be in charge unfortunately and that's all for part three part four is called the white mulberry tree and this is that's where the central dramatic event of, of the short novel takes place is under the white mulberry tree so it's that this that's the event that's referred to in the title of part four um so willa cather doesn't waste any time here she she has emile returning to the divide um and we see frank frank's uh, marie's wife or husband sorry um and he's getting more and more Jealous of Marie, and the return of Emile starts to get him a little bit more cautious and anxious. He he doesn't seem to be he's not a horrible person. or something that Alexandra, you know, she doesn't even really blame him for for killing Emile. All right, I just kind of spoiled it, but um, doesn't matter. If you're reading along with me, you know what happened. She doesn't seem to really uh, blame him directly, so she doesn't seem as a bad person. In fact, she almost sees what he did as justifiable. But you start to see that Frank is getting more and more into his head that Marie is drifting away. And it seems it's a pretty loveless marriage. It's not just that, like, Marie doesn't have much feelings for her husband. It's very much, you know, she's in this kind of culture and society. She needs to marry someone and, you know, for security and land and all that. And Frank just has this kind of possessiveness of of Marie. But he doesn't really respect, seem to display that much love for her either um, and he just has kind of a general feeling of jealousy. It's, it's kind of odd, even before he highlights Emile as the problem. Quote, Frank's case was all the more painful because he he had no one in particular to fix his jealousy upon. Sometimes he could have thanked the man who would bring his, him evidence against his wife. He had discharged a good farm boy, Jan Schmerka, because he thought Marie was fond of him. But she had not seemed to miss Jan when he was gone, and she'd always been as kind to of the next boy. The farmhands would always do anything for Marie. Frank couldn't find one, one so surely that he would not making an effort to please her. At the bottom of his heart, Frank knew well enough that if he could once give up his grudge, his wife would come back to him. But he could never in the world do that. The grudge was fundamental. I don't know. Is this just a problem of anyone with a, with a beautiful, charming uh, spouse? I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not justifying Frank's bizarre, um, almost pathological jealousy, but you know, it's a, I think it's a fairly common thing people experience at least it's common in literature um so at a fair they you know emile and marie are hanging out at this fair there's actually been a couple fairs in the short novel um maybe they they i guess there are big events in the countryside right it's one of the few times the whole community got together they actually have a have a little bit of a kiss there so it's their it's their first kiss and it's rather sweet and that happens very early in this part four a little bit later, Emile and Marie confess that they love each other. They realize, though, that getting together is going to be difficult, but, but they do c- confess their love. So that happens in the Library of America version on page um, 250, not long after their kiss. So then after this confession of love, Emile and Alexandra have, I think, what might be their last meeting, at least the last one we see, um, in the novel and they talk about various things but mostly they talk about their grandfather and their grandfather was basically a criminal he was a uh, conned a bunch of sailors out of, out of a bunch of their savings and money and and he was just a bad person in fact john bergson their father had actually hoped to make money and, and pay back these sailors or their families but he was never able to make enough money to do that alexandra doesn't seem to though carry on that obligation she just says "Ah, oh, grandpa was was a crook they talk a little bit about his time in Mexico because Emil spent time in Mexico earlier to get away from Marie. And he kind of talks about how he sort of likes Mexican culture and aspects of Mexican culture. And then Alexandra says, you know, you got to stick with your people, right? Stick with, uh, stick with the Swedes. Don't, don't get too involved with others. And she points out like the Bohemians and Germans. But Emile has a much more cosmopolitan identity because he did go to the university and he kind of had diff- a lot of different people around him you know, in his in his community. So uh Emile's a bit just more worldly and broad. I mean Alexandra's worldly too in the fact that she's very hard headed and you know, focus on business all the time and focus on the workings of the farm. But, you know, Emile's traveled around a lot more. So Alexandra's became sort of stuck in Nebraska. Um so that's those are some of the themes going on in that, that conversation. Um, the next thing that happens is is Amadi now Amadi is like a, a Frenchman and he was one of Emile's good friends when they were kids and he when he you know when he came back after university he talked had to talk with Amadi about you know and Amadi's like well you got, you, should, you should get a girl right and and you know be a bit of a player basically he was saying to him and he's like I'm gonna do that and when we re-meet him, after Emil comes back, we find that Amadeus he's he's gotten married, so he's become settled down. He's become a family man himself. Um, yet he dies very quickly. After we reintroduce to Amadi, he 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 has a burst appendix, and they try to save his life, but but he dies. And it's at the funeral that he begins to ponder what he should do with his with his life at this point. You know, should you know, he he really can't be the house homebreaker he you know should he settle down should he just be a wanderer he's struggling over what to do with his life but catherine spends much more time in the mind of marie as she struggles with this when she hears news of amadie's illness his burst appendix i think this is before he even died he you know she's she thinks mostly about emile at this point so um this is what catherine writes Poor Amity's illness had taken on a new meaning for her, now that she knew Emile had been with him. And it might so easily have been the other way. Emile who was ill and Amity who was sad. Marie looked around the dusky sitting room. She had seldom felt so utterly alone. If Emile was asleep, there was not a chance of his coming. And she could not go to Alexander for sympathy. She meant to tell Alexander everything as soon as Emile went away. Then whatever was left between them would be honest. So she sort of realizes that that Emile's going to have to move on uh, that she can't really promise him anything because of of her marriage and that's what she kind of concludes later on in that same section emile was already gone they couldn't meet anymore there was nothing for them to say they had spent the last penny of their small change there was nothing left but gold the days of love tokens were past. they had now only their hearts to give to each other and emile being gone what was her life to be like in some ways it would be easier she was not at least she would not at least live in perpetual fear. If Emil was were once away and settled at work, she would not have the feeling that she was spoiling his life. With the memory he had left her, she could be as rash as she choose, chose. Nothing could be worse for it but herself. And so that surely did not matter. Um, but anyways, that's that's some of her thoughts about it. She's basically... Resigned to Emile leaving But she thinks that that's best And Emile is basically deciding to move on with his life too So yeah, they got close to maybe having an affair And having a relationship But but neither kind of crossed that line All they really made of it was uh, A kiss and an acknowledgement of, of their feelings for one another um, But after Amidi's death They have this meeting under the white mulberry tree uh, Marie and, and Emile Where they basically hug and say their goodbyes and Frank, completely out of his mind, drunk, like so drunk, he doesn't even remember really doing this or why, or, you know, he doesn't know why he had a gun with him, but he sees them and he shoots both of them. He shoots both Marie and Emile dead. Ivor, who's kind of been in the backdrop of this section. In fact, I think there was an incident where the neighbors are trying to get rid of Emile and kick him out. And, and Alexander has to kind of stand up for Emile, but Emile's there and he sees the murder and he's the witness with to the murder and And that's basically what happens in the section called The White Mulberry Tree. It's just about Emil coming back, realizing and confessing his love for Marie. And then after his friend dies, he realizes he has to kind of move on with his life and start living his life, not just kind of be bound to this Nebraska homestead. And he just makes the decision to leave. Marie, you know, agrees to kind of commit to Frank and not not take that path to being an adulteress. Um, yet, as they say their goodbyes, they're seen by the husband and, and shot. So that's the tragedy that, that makes the heart of the, that's the heart of the novel. And the last section is just called Alexandra, and it's it's about Alexandra coming to her own. So if you want to kind of give meaning to the title of this section, it's it's for the first time that Alexandra has, the, has a chance to really be her own, own person after always being just kind of one with the farm, right? So if it's... You know, you know the, the, every, the previous chapters all like had name or seasons, names of seasons or names of places. Uh, the only one that really had the name of a character is Alexandra. And but it, it's only at this moment of the story that she makes a decision for herself and not for the family or for the farm or her father's wishes or whatever. So anyways, as we are reintroduced to Alexandra in part five, she's suffering immense grief over the death of 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 Emile. She doesn't get much help from her brothers. She, she really, who are kind of out of the family. I think they, they're kind of just dealing with their own farms at this point. But Alexandra is helped along by Ivor, um, just as she was helped very early in the story. She actually went to Ivor for advice on raising hogs after her father died. Ivor gave it to her, and then Ivor's there at the end uh, helping her deal with her grief. And she decides at this moment to to help Frank and to kind of You know, she's again being the sacrificial person. She sees Frank as a person in crisis that needs her help, that needs support, even though like she kind of makes the decision that, yeah, Marie and Emile are dead. Not much to do about them, but Frank can still be helped. So she goes to see Frank and, you know, she kind of decides to move on with what can be saved. And she actually justifies the murder almost. She comes pretty close to it anyways. Quote, Frank was the only one, Alexander told herself, for whom anything could be done. He had been less in the wrong than any of them, and he was paying the heaviest penalty. She often felt that she herself had been more to blame than poor Frank. From the time the Shabbatists had first moved to the neighboring farm, she had admitted no opportunity of throwing Marie and Emile together. Because she knew Frank was surely about doing little things to help his wife, she was always sending Emile over to spade or plant or carpenter for Marie. She was glad to have Emile see as much as possible in the intelligent, city-bred girl like her neighbors. She noticed that it improved his manner. She knew that Emile was fond of Marie but it never occurred to her that Emile's feelings might be somewhat different from her own. If Emile had been unmarried, oh yes, then she would have kept her eyes open. But the mere fact that she was Shabata's wife for Alexandra settled everything. So she starts to blame herself for this and she decides to do what she can for Frank. There's not much she can do though because Frank's in jail and probably going to be in jail for a lot of years. So she goes to Lincoln where, where Frank is and she first sees Emile's old college and at one point she sees a young man who reminds her of Emil and she's kind of like, oh, uh, she has the the moment where she's like, Oh, is that Emil? and then turned, the guy turns around to someone else and then she's like embarrassed by that. So that's kind of that, that scene you see a lot of times in in films or in stories. But she kind of for this is her first kind of time away from the farm for a significant length of time, where she's kind of seeing the world and she's able to see it through Emile's eyes, maybe for the first time, because that's where Emil spent so much of his time. Um, Eventually, she goes to see Frank and she goes to the jail and Frank Frank is kind of in a bad place. He's actually absolutely guilt written over over what he did. He he confesses he really didn't know where his head was when he committed the murder. Now, we don't really know what she does if she ends up like talking to lawyers or whatever, but she just promises Frank that she'll do what she can for him. Um, which is not the first time she's done this. She's done this for Ivor, for instance. Ivor came to her for essentially legal help, and she said, I'll do what I can to help you. So again, Alexandra, to the last pages of the novel, is essentially being the servant of, of others' needs. But it's in the last, very last pages of the novel that Alexandra um, learns that Carl's returning, and then she decides at that moment that she's going to get married to Carl and she's going to live her life for herself and that she's not going to just be a servant of, of others. So pretty much the character growth for Alexandra all takes place in the last page. But it's in the aftermath, of I think, of Emile's death where, you know, she's still going to be the helper and the leader that she's been accustomed to being via Frank and the farm. But she's decided to... To commit herself to to her own future and that she's going to do that by by marrying carl but the last few pages are quite uh nice it's carl and alexandra you know who have decided to get married having this conversation where they they, she talks about like leaving the land and, and leaving the land to if not her children the children of lou and oscar and how this land is gonna stay in the family and how even if she kind of leaves, she can't fully escape this. Quote, uh, Lou and Oscar can't see those things. Suppose I do will the land to, my ch- to the ch- their children. What difference will it make? The land belongs to the future, Carl. That's the way it seems to me. How many of the names on the county clerk's plat will there be in 50 years? I might as well try to will the sunset over there to my brother's children. We come and we go, but the land is always there. And the people who love it and understanding it are the people who own it for a little while. Like the land is, is something more eternal. And the very last imagery is actually her leaving the divide. They going into the house, leaving the divide behind them. And that's, the, we get, quote, they went into the house together, leaving the divide behind them under the evening star. Fortunate country that is one day to receive hearts like Alexander's into its bosom, to give them out again into the yellow wheat, into the rustling corn and the shining eyes of youth. So it's a symbolism of passing on the land to to the future generations. Um, so that's it. That's the story of of old pioneers. Um, I guess not too much more to say about this story, um, except that I, I like it and I, I recommend it. Thematically, I think it's it's interesting the way we see the major conflict in the novel is over land and over the division of land and and the generational transfer of land. And that's the, the that's what happens at the beginning of the novel is, John Bergson passing the land on to his daughter. And then at the end, Alexandra passing the land, at least in a thematic sense to the next generation. The other, I think tension we have here is, is the tension of do you stay on the land or do you move out? And, you know, is it selfish to move on or, you know, to go to the city, to explore the city. This is going to come up a lot in song of the lark, actually of like our obligation to, to the land of our fathers, or do we have an obligation to our own self and our own desires and, and, and interests and alexandra kind of compromises on this at the end she she decides to ignore her brother's wishes on marriage i mean that's one reason throughout i, I think i didn't mention this before the brothers don't like carl because they think she's carl just wants land right and that's one thing that led alexandra to actually hesitate in pursuing a relationship with with carl um we have uh, also this kind of illicit affair this you know the, the threat of adultery on the overhang overhanging all this uh, the kind of the the matriarchal figure i think is another theme we haven't seen too much of that in american literature um the, at least the stuff we've got, I've covered in this podcast uh maybe a few maybe in some of the harlem renaissance stuff we find patriarchal matriarchal households maybe like in there's uh what's the one by langston hughes about laughter um whatever um not without laughter, that one. They, you may have had that. There was a, uh, that was a kind of run by the grandma. right? But Willa Cather, already in, in just kind of looking at the troll gardens and, and this one, we've seen a couple examples of, of female-dominated households. Um, we've seen it in Flavia and the Artist. We've seen it in the Garden Lodge. We have it in, in this too. Uh, the land is certainly thematically very important here. The frontier... Um, so, yeah, the a lot of themes we've looked at before in, in this podcast are here. But it's, it's a short little novel. I mean, it's not a novel that's worth, I think, talking about for hours on end. Maybe You probably could, but I'm not going to. So I'm going to close the book on old pioneers. Um, I'm sure I missed a lot. I'm sure I misinterpreted a lot. I'm sure I, I'm superficial on things that I should be focusing on. So please send me your comments about... Uh, what was your experience reading O Pioneers? Have you seen the adaptation? Uh, I think it was a made for TV Hallmark kind of movie. What's your feelings about that? Is it worth seeing? Um, I'd just love to hear your opinions. I probably won't go out and see it, but if, if you have and you have some feelings about it, I'd love to hear that. So just leave a comment or you can send me an email at 100 at gmail.com. Um, and that does it for the first volume of the Great Plains Trilogy by Willa Cather. In the next episode, we'll begin what will be a four-part series looking at the Song of the Lark. Um, I think it's, that's a much, it's a bigger novel in a lot of ways. And its I also think it's better. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more. But, you know, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll hold off more, more comments to say about it until till I get to it. But um, that's thats what we have to look forward to. So if you're reading along with me, read the first couple sections of song of the lark and I'll, I'll give you my thoughts about it in the next episode so uh, as always thanks for listening and i will see you next time